Romans 9. I'd have to say probably the most fascinating tour that I've ever taken in my life is when we took the family to D.C., Washington, D.C., in the district there. And they have these free walking tours. Now, you, you pay at the end. Of course, it's all volunteer. But there is a walking tour we saw. It's called the Lincoln Assassination Walking Tour. And I had some understanding of what had taken place there. And I like, let's go try this out. It was awesome. I tell you what, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there was a three-pronged attack to basically decapitate the U.S. government. It was all coordinated. It was all supposed to basically take place at the same time, culminating with the assassination of Lincoln himself. And we, they just take you on a tour, and they actually walk you to where all of these things took place. And you're just like, I had no idea. I'd certainly seen these things before. We'd actually walk by them during the day. But to have someone explain what took place in all these different places, and it all culminates, you're standing outside the Ford Theater where where Lincoln was assassinated. And at the end, they actually show you this is exactly where they took Lincoln's body across the street as he's dying. You know, he took that bullet to his head. And you're just like, oh. And people are crying. And it is so moving because someone is explaining to you what took place. And that's something that we've liked to do as families, just go on tours. If you're looking for good things to do, I've, I've been on lots of tours. The U.S. Bureau and Engraving and Printing, like in Fort Worth, where they make their money. I was in Byrome and went to a cotton gin. I've been to Clayton Mobile Homes. I could tour on how they do that there. Uh, here's one, the Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory. If you're ever in Colorado Springs, you want to do that. I mean, there's, it's, it's really good. Not only is it good tasting, you're like... Whoa, you just, you learn so much when you actually have someone that knows and starts showing you what takes place behind the scenes. Last year, I took a tour of Baylor's new McLean Stadium uh, while it was under construction. Do you know that they actually sunk piers 50 feet deep to stabilize that building? I'm sure that when you're over there and you're screaming your head off, that you have no idea and you're not thinking about those piers that have sunk in there, but you know why they did that? Because that building is built in a 100-year floodplain, and they don't want it to go floating off sometime. They want it stabilized. But you wouldn't know that unless you took the tour and someone pointed that out to you. Well, when you come to Romans chapter 9, it is like a behind-the-scenes tour of God's salvation. It is going to show you things like we saw last week that are literally going to blow your mind. You would have never thought of that. You would have never planned it that way. And yet God reveals in his word just the depth of his character, of his sovereignty, and the ability to bring about salvation. And so let me just recap, give you the big picture of where we're at. We as Christians receive salvation because of the merciful choice of God, beginning in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, all the way through 29. And we started making our way through that. And then beginning in verse 30 through the end of the chapter, it talks about, but we also, we have salvation because of our genuine faith in Christ. And so just to kind of recap, we started looking at the merciful choice of God. And if you remember all the way back in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, we saw three Old Testament illustrations of God's sovereignty. God chose Isaac, though he was the second born to Abraham, and not Ishmael. Which, by the way, all the Arab people, according to Islamic tradition, they trace their origins to who? Ishmael. They believe, no, God's spiritual promise comes through Ishmael, but God made it clear, no, it's going to come to Isaac, even though he was born after Ishmael. And then there was another illustration. You have Jacob and Esau, remember? In fact, you can see it. Look at Romans chapter 9, just to review a few things. Verse 10, we want to see God's choice, his merciful choice. 
Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, Jacob and Esau, our father Isaac, though, look at verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. What he's establishing is that God is the one who actually determines where the spiritual line of promise is going to come. Esau was born first. He should have received the double blessing, the inheritance, all the promises should have gone through his line. But God says, I want to make it crystal clear in the history of Israel that I do the choosing. And I have selected Jacob, though he came after Esau, and it has nothing to do with the fact that like, like Jacob was a great guy. Because both Esau and Jacob were bad guys. And God says, I want you to understand something about my choice. Before they were born, I made the selection. They hadn't done anything good or bad. It's not that God looks into the future to see those who are going to respond and says, I'm going to choose those people. No, before any of those things happened, God's purpose according to his choice. That word, Greek word, is ekloge. Okay, and so maybe you've heard the word election. It has the idea, the act of choosing out. It is election to the privilege of divine grace. And what God wants us to understand is that he chooses. It's his merciful choice. And so what we're looking at is God's sovereignty. It's God's right to freely act, reign, and ordain whatever comes to pass in keeping with his character as the ruler of the universe. God makes the merciful choice, not us. And when you see all of this, what it does is seeing the sovereignty of God develops our confidence in the salvation that he brings because we see that he's the one who does it. Or just to review another verse, look at verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills. It's not your desire or the man who runs, your activity, your effort, but on God who has mercy. It's God who calls. And so that kind of brings us to where we're at right now, and we're going to start picking it up in verse 19. Now, you might be thinking like, well, wait a second here. So if God's the one doing all the choosing then, well then, who could resist his will? In fact, look what this text says, verse 19. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And look at what he says, verse 20. On the contrary... Who are you, O man, who answers back to God, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And what he's doing there is he's, he's showing, using diatribe as a rhetorical expression used in communication as a teaching tool, he's, he's surfacing questions, especially questions that came in regards to the gospel of God's grace. And they're saying, well, if God is the one who actually picks his people, well then who's going to resist his will? You know, it's not as apparent in the English language, but it is quite apparent when you look at the Greek word there in verse 20, where it talks about who answers back to God. That answers back, or could be translated reply, has, it's like to reply against. It's to dispute. It is to come with kind of a caustic attitude to like, well, hey, God, if you're the one that's doing all this, then who's going to resist your will? It's like to come to, to God with kind of the idea that God has to answer you. You have a caustic attitude. And there's something that you need to understand about God. God knows the difference between a person that comes with sincerity of heart 
and those who come with like a scoffing request. There's a difference between a skeptic who is sincerely seeking answers. seems like God mercifully provides truth and people in, those, people in their lives to help them have a better understanding. But if you have an attitude that kind of is flippant toward God, mocking, scoffing, kind of a God you have to answer to me, like I'm sovereign like you are, it never works that way. God is the absolute Lord over all creation, and he does whatever he chooses. And the whole idea of arrogance toward God, that never works. And that's why he says, who in the world are you to answer back to God? He's got the right to do as he was, he wants. Look what he says in verse 20. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? It doesn't, doesn't work that way. And there's something you need to know. God has chosen that this is how it is to work. Do you know that God chooses not to disclose everything that could be known? Like in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are things that God could reveal to his people, but he chooses not to. Why is that? Because he wants us to live by faith in what he has revealed. Frankly, we're not even doing a great job with what he has revealed. And he wants us to live by faith. It's interesting, even the final book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 10, verse 4, there are these seven peals of thunder, and they reveal about what is going to happen in the end time. And God says, I want you to seal it up. I do not want you, John, to write those things down. And why did he do that? To show you there is far more that could be revealed, but God chooses not to reveal it. Everything you and I need for life and faith and godliness, he's already given to us in his word. The question is, will you believe? God wants his people to walk by faith. You can't put God in a box where you got it all figured out, that your theological system can answer every single question because the scriptures make it perfectly clear it will never be that way. For he is God and you are not. And that includes the whole subject of how God works even in his sovereignty and salvation. And what he's going to do when he talks about molding and, and using clay is that, is that God is using an illustration he used with the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah used this idea that God is sovereign like a potter. And so he says, the thing molded, verse 20, will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Like the little teapot says, hey, wait a second, I don't like the way you're shaping me. You know, it doesn't work that way. Verse 21, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Doesn't the potter have a right to do that, to make one vessel used for very special, significant purposes and others to be common for a common purpose? He does, and that's what he's saying there. You can't go and question God. He says, this is how I'm going to do it, and just like a piece of clay doesn't say, hey, I want it to be different, you need to answer back to me, so it is with humanity. And he says, verse 22, what he's actually doing. Verse 22, he says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Okay, we're going to break this down because this is, this is, well, we're getting some pretty deep theological water here when we hit verse 22. What is the illustration that he'd just been using from last week? Remember? Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a man who had immense privilege. He had all sorts of blessings that we might think of. 
He also, at 10 different times, saw God's miraculous nature. He actually encountered the power of the living God. But did Pharaoh repent and believe? Did he? No. What did he do? He hardened his heart. And it even says 10 times that he hardened his heart, 10 times God hardened his heart. God gave him over to a trajectory that he was already on and his heart was calcified toward God. And he says what God was doing is he was demonstrating his patience. You see that? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? God is patient. He could have eliminated them at any time. Why? Because they are sinful. But here's something that we start to see about God's character, that he is patient and even merciful and gracious even to the wicked who despise him and harden their hearts to him. Now, what is, what is going on here? We, we don't really like this idea that, that that's how it works. It's like this. The problem is people reject the idea that God actually has people that are going to continue on this trajectory and go to hell because we believe that we have a right we mistakenly believe that God owes us salvation. It goes the gra- against the grain of our character to think that God would allow some just to continue on a trajectory of being facing his wrath and, and always hardening their heart. Now, this is a pretty difficult verse. In verse 22, the English is not as clear as like when you see it in the Greek. And I want to address this issue on verse 22 at the very end where it says, prepared for destruction. Okay. In the Greek, that word prepared, and you're going to see the same word happen in verse 23 as well. The first time it's used in verse 22, it is in the passive tense. It is to, not, it is to put the responsibility on the person, okay? Not on God, but it's on they were prepared for destruction. They face wrath because they have given themselves over to sin. Now, There is a doctrine that's called, you may have heard of this, it's called doctrine of double predestination or the doctrine of reprobation. And what it says is this, God chooses who goes to hell. So does he? Well, he could, but he doesn't. Let me give you two reasons why. One, first reason why is that it's totally not necessary. God doesn't have to choose people to go to hell because why? We are all of clay, like Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are already on a trajectory to eternal death. God doesn't have to choose that to happen. He could, but he doesn't because we're already on a trajectory. The other reason why I believe that God does not choose people for hell is because that is outside of God's character. That is not who he is. He is merciful and he is just. But why does God have such great patience with these people that are going to reject him? Verse 23 answers that question. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared, same word, but now in the active tense, this time speaking the subject is actively doing it, God prepared beforehand for glory. God wants to show his glory his greatness, the wonders of salvation against the backdrop of people that are continually sinful and reject God. 
It's like a diamond that shines against this backdrop of black. When you would come to a place where you're believing and you're trusting in Christ, you start to realize just what God has saved you from. And that is why he has set this up way. It leads to worship that God, you didn't have to. I was woefully sinful, broken, despairing, disgusting, and yet you rescued me and saved me. Why? Because you actually, what the text says, you prepared beforehand. Again, speaking of like before time, you've prepared beforehand that this is how you're going to demonstrate your glory. Now, this is a pretty difficult doctrine. Let me give you like an illustration of maybe how this could work. Now, there's breakdowns of these illustrations. I mean, we're talking some pretty significant theology. But if you've ever been to a salvage yard, you may notice that they have these giant electromagnets, okay? And what they do is they put electricity through those magnets, and those giant electromagnets, what they do is they have, draw, have a tremendous force to draw ferrous metal to them. And it literally, as they're sorting through scrap metal, ferrous metal just it just immediately locks onto that magnet. But on the other hand, metals like aluminum, uh, brass, absolutely no response. Never respond. Brass doesn't go up to the magnet. Aluminum doesn't. And in a similar way, God, as he brings forth the gospel, those whom he has selected will believe at some point in their life. Maybe when they're real young, middle age. I've seen it on deathbeds. I've seen it where a guy is going to die soon And then, after spending a whole life of wickedness, and this particular guy that I'm thinking of spent half his life in a bar, then he believes, and he believes at the end of his life. God is the one who does that. And Paul says, not only is this is how it works, but look at verse 24. He says, this is how it worked in my life. This isn't just theory or theology. Paul says, this is highly personal. Look what he says, verse 24, even us. God is still doing this work of drawing people to himself, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Paul says, this is what happened in my life. I once was a rejecter of Christ. I was about as hard as hearted toward God as you could be in terms of believing in Messiah. And God drew me to himself. And he's writing to Romans, Jewish Romans, Gentile Romans. God has drawn them to himself. And what it shows is that God is sovereign in his choice. And that's manifested not only in the Jewish ancestry, like he chose Isaac, right? Not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. God says, I want you to understand this principle. I have it embedded in your history. I am that powerful. And that's what salvation looks like behind the scenes. In fact, you'd never know this apart from me revealing this. But not only did he just keeps going. He's going to say that all of this was prophesied in the Old Testament. And beginning in verse 25 through 29, he's going to give you a series of Old Testament quotations to show that Israel's unbelief is not inconsistent with the redemption that God provided in the Old Testament. There has always been just a fraction, just a remnant that would be saved. And so he says, he starts going through, he begins in verse 25, And he says also in Hosea, that great Hispanic prophet, Hosea. Okay, that is is a joke, right? Okay, if you think that there was a Hispanic prophet, there wasn't one, okay? Hosea, but Hosea, listen to what he said. I will call those who were not my people 
my people. You see that verse 25? And her who is not beloved, beloved. And he's speaking of those who had went into exile in the Babylonian captivity, 586 BC, then God brings back a remnant and they actually establish worship at the temple again. Was it all of Israel? Actually, it was just a fraction of the people. Most of them, nah, we're gonna, we like it out here in Babylon. Or it's working out for us, and we're going to just stay here. God shows a fraction. Her, they were once not his people. They had rejected him. God says, I'm making you my people. You want, once were not beloved, I'm going to show you that my, you're my dearly loved ones. And he's doing this not only to show that that's what was the case among the Jews, but this has a full fulfillment, and that's what God is even doing with the Gentiles. I mean, we once were totally not as people, right? There's only two people in our church that I know that have Jewish backgrounds that have come to place their faith in, in Jesus as Messiah. The rest of us, man, we are so Gentile, we don't even know where we came from, right? Well, that's the beauty of God's grace. He is selecting people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's what he's, he's showing here. It is going to be a remnant because God is a multi-ethnic, multinational, multicultural, multiracial God. And when we get to the kingdom of heaven where we are actually in the presence of the Lord, people from every part of the world, from every cultural background, we're going to find that the gospel went forth and that there were people that believed and God is going to be worshipped and praised by people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right now, my desire, I was telling one of my kids this yesterday, I would love for fellowship to be a microcosm of heaven. Every race, every nationality, every background coming to worship and rejoice in the living God. But it will be the reality to where we're going in the presence of the king. God is making a selection. You weren't once my people, now you are. And he, go, he keeps going. He goes on to say in verse 27, Isaiah says much the same thing. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant who will be saved. Just a small fraction, just a part. He says, verse 28, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. God's going to do it. He's going to bring about not only a judgment for those who, re who reject him, but he is going to actually save a remnant. And we find out that it was not only among the Jews, just a remnant, but even among the Gentiles. And he says, verse 28, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, verse 29, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left, us, left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. And what he's saying there, unless God had actually made a choice to save some, a remnant, all of us would be destroyed. For Israel, when they would think of God's judgment against sin, Sodom and Gomorrah would come to their mind because that was a picture of you reject God and you go on and live your rampant, immoral life of just refusing God, making gods of your own creation. God has a limit and he will bring judgment. And all you have to do is read, that, read some of those passages about once to realize that God is not a God to be trifled with. He means business. And when he brings judgment, it's far more serious than you've ever imagined. And yet, he, we would have all been on that trajectory had not God been merciful. Now, I'll tell you what, I, I know this is a tough text. 
I know that for some of you, you have never encountered this. Others of you, you come from a church tradition or a background or a particular denomination that said, whatever that they're talking about there, you shouldn't believe that. There is a reason why Romans 9 is just jumped over. Because we are encountering God as he is, and there is something in us that we just, we just repel the idea that God is that sovereign in salvation. I'll, I'll just tell you from my own personal journey, I, if you come to our Discover Life class, I always share my testimony of how I came to Christ when I was in college. And I would have never drawn the conclusion that God was somehow working before time and choosing even a guy like me, of all people, to believe in him. I would never come to that thinking apart from the scriptures. You know, if God hadn't revealed this, you and I would think very differently about salvation. But God has, like in Romans chapter 9 or Ephesians chapter 1, I remember reading this and going like, what in the world? You know, God choosing us before the foundation of the world? I mean, I thought I kind of worked this out with God. What is this, what is this text saying? Where he started, you look at Jesus and he makes these statements like, for instance, in John 15, verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. What? I cho- Wait, I thought I chose you, Jesus. And he's saying, no, it's not really isn't that way. I chose you. You did not choose me, I chose you, and I pointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain so that you would ask the Father my name, and he may give it to you. But I'm the one that's doing this. Remember in the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, they're making their way, they're proclaiming the gospel. They're try, they start off in synagogues, proclaim it to the Jews, but they also start, once the Jews reject them, then they start telling the gospel to the Gentiles, and lo and behold, these non-Jewish people are believing in the Jewish Messiah. And it says in Acts 13, verse 48, it's a really interesting statement. When the Gentiles heard this, they heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had, had been appointed to eternal life believed. What? They were appointed, and then they believed. God is the one who does this. The Redeemer always selects who or what is going to be redeemed. That's how it works. In adoption, who picks who's going to be adopted? Do you know? The person doing the adopting does. And that's how it works. Or to give you another illustration, it's kind of like radio signals, like a radio signal is going out from a radio tower. There are some that have a receiver that can receive the signal and then do, they tune in and they, and they respond. And there are others that don't have the receiver and they never respond, but the radio signal continues to go out. And there are some that are just kind of outside of the range, but they're eventually brought in at some point in time. And this is our God. We receive salvation because of the merciful choice of God. But there is a whole other side to this. We also receive salvation because of our genuine faith in Christ. It's like this, friends. God who ordains the end result, he also ordains the means to the end. He is sovereign in the end choice. He is sovereign in the means by which it is going to come about. The whole idea of God's election or God selecting individuals does in no way eliminate human responsibility. Remember last week we talked about that rope that's on a pulley, okay? And there's two sides of that rope, but it's all one rope. It's got it attached on that pulley, right? There is God's sovereignty, but at the same time, there is human responsibility. And it's like Spurgeon said, they are friends, and one need not reconcile friends. They are two lines going in a parallel direction, and they actually meet in eternity. 
Us, in our finite minds, we're like, I can't see that. That's beyond my ability to perceive logic. But God presents both to be true. I'm sovereign in salvation, and you must absolutely believe in Christ. To illustrate that for you, let's take the subject of prayer. Okay? God tells us to pray. But you're like, hey, you know, I'm, I believe this stuff here in Romans 9 and other chapters where God is completely sovereign. His sovereignty reigns over all. I got it. So why should I pray? Because if God's going to work it all out, I guess I don't need to pray, do I? But actually, the scriptures call us to pray. So why is it we have to pray when God's got it worked out? Because it is through prayer that God actually accomplishes his work. And people who understand prayer, more than like the 22nd thank you for the food kind of deal, people that learn to pray and they're praying for needs and praying for people and praying for the furthering of the work and perseverance and unity, they understand that God accomplishes his work through the sovereign means in which he's established it, and that is by his people praying. And you need to know that that is true of salvation as well. You must believe because that is how God brings about salvation. So look what he says, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. That word righteousness means to be in a legal right standing with God. How is it that the non-Jewish Gentiles are receiving righteousness? And then he says, in contrast to verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. How is it the the Gentiles are receiving God's legal declaration that they're right with God because of their faith in Christ, and the Jewish people are not? And that is because, for the most part, the Jewish people have rejected the Messiah. You remember how this chapter began, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5? And Paul just gives a litany of significant privileges and blessings that have come to the people of Israel. This is what happened. Those privileges were meant to lead them to believe the Messiah when he arrived. The problem was, is that they put their faith in, a, in those privileges as a substitute for Christ. They didn't want to believe in a crucified Messiah. They wanted to believe that they could attain their own salvation by believing and holding on to these privileges that God had given them. And that is the problem. The Jew, Gentiles, on the other hand, are like, man, we are terrible sinners. We know that. But we believe that Jesus really is the only solution for sin, that we really can have genuine relationship with God, and they receive the righteousness that comes by faith. And what took place? Well, this is exactly what Isaiah had prophesied. Look at verse 32. Why? Why is it like this? Gentiles becoming the people of God because they're believing in Jesus and Israel not. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith. They did not believe. That is absolutely essential for salvation. They didn't believe but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. When Christ came, salvation was made clear that it is only by believing in Christ. It is all what the Old Testament was pointing toward. All of their ceremonies pointed to this one. He fulfilled the prophecies. There are about 333 prophecies about Christ. He starts systematically fulfilling them so no one will miss it. He does miracles so that people know that he's God. And he calls people to themselves to believe. 
and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They should have come to him to stand on the rock, to find security and comfort and safety in the rock. But they're like, "Uh uh-uh. We don't want you. We don't like it like this. And they tripped over that stumbling stone. And the whole reason is this. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is a violent assault to our pride. It was for the Jewish people. It is for a lot of folks today. You mean I just come with my sin and I just trust in a Savior? That's right. I don't like that. I'd, I'd like to do it on my own. And so they tripped over the stumbling stone and he says, you know what? This was prophesied as well. And he quotes Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Zion, it started off, Zion was called the hill where the actual temple was, where the days the temple mount is. And there's also the dome of the rock. That was Zion. But Zion later became to known all of Jerusalem. It was referred to as Zion, the city of Zion. It is the place where Jesus the Christ was condemned, crucified, and rose from the grave. God establishes his stumbling stone, his rock, the rock of salvation. It is in Jerusalem. This is where it happens. It's Jesus. And you know what? They stumbled over him. They took offense at him. They would not have him. Even the Old Testament prophets said, this is going to happen. You are going to reject the very Messiah I'm going to provide for you. Why? Why did the Jewish people, what's going on in their mind? Why would they reject him when they saw him fulfilling all these prophecies? I mean, it seems like so logical. How can you miss it? No one, no one mathematically could fulfill all these prophecies like he did. And that is, let me give you down to the core reason. In Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, it it said that a person who was hanged on a tree was accursed. They were under the under God's curse. And the idea of proclaiming a Jesus, a Messiah, who dies on a tree, on a cross, like, no way. We want a military conqueror. We want a Messiah who's going to take charge. We don't want a Messiah that's hanging on a tree. And yet, he had to. He, the Messiah had to take God's full just wrath of, against sin upon himself so that those who believe in him never would. And they're saying, that's too much. I'm, I, I can't do that. And they tripped over the stumbling stone. They simply would not have it. And yet, notice how chapter 9 ends. And it says, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. You see, you either reject him or you receive him. You either are like, no way, I'm dismissing or you believe. But God's desired will, and that's in contrast to a decreed will that we've been looking at in Romans 9, his desired will is that for everyone to believe. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, this is good and acceptable in sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires that people believe, and you must And if you will believe in Christ, you will not be disappointed in this life and most certainly in the life to come. You will find just how glorious it is to be united with Christ. Now, some people come to this chapter and they're like, whoa, wait a second here. How do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if God's chosen me? This is how you know. Do you believe that Jesus is indeed Lord 
and Messiah, that he's paid for your sins, that you have true, authentic, genuine spiritual life in, you, in him. If you believed, you know that you're a part of God's people that he chose out even before time. It's not meant to be a truth that is to create arrogance in your life. It is meant to fill you with rejoicing to realize that you are so loved, not only in time, but even outside of time. God's immense love for his people is far greater than we ever imagined. And yet, in the midst of all this, we got a lot of people that just, no way, I'm not believing in Jesus, care less. Why is that? Why do they, why do they reject him? Well, Jesus addressed that issue. Remember John 5, 39? He's got all the Jewish leaders there, and he says, you know what? You search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. But he said, but these speak of me. You think that by just knowing the Bible that you've got eternal life. Uh Uh-uh. The scriptures, they all point to me. You got to believe in me. And he said in the same sentence, next verse, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Do you know why people face eternity apart from God? Do you know why they go on to destruction? Because they're unwilling to believe. And that's what the scripture makes perfectly clear. You only have to look in the mirror if you've rejected Christ to look and see your reason for why you'll spend eternity apart from him. That is why the scriptures so desperately plead, you must believe in Christ. This isn't a game. This isn't a nice little church service. This is eternal life or death. You must believe. And Christianity is like the unreligion. All religions are trying to earn God's favor to do things, to somehow put themselves in a position to experience God. But the one true faith is this. You just show up with your need. You just show up with your sin. You just show up with your wretchedness, and you believe in Christ and you receive his righteousness. And this, my friends, is like a behind-the-scenes tour of salvation. The most important question of life is this. What will you do with Jesus? You don't have to fully understand all the background stuff of Romans chapter 9 and how God works out salvation. Look, one major question you have to answer is what will you do with Jesus? You going to be like Pharaoh? You see people coming to Christ. You see God's power. You see blessings in your life. You even see miracles in the lives of other people and you just keep hardening your heart? Or will you be like Paul? Yeah, you were on a trajectory. You hated Christians. And God changed your heart and you received and believed and you started to grow in the context of unconditional love. Which will it be for you? Will you stumble over the stumbling stone or will you find Jesus to be the rock of your salvation? Well, that all gets answered by do you know Christ? And I'll tell you this, he who believes in him will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing chapter of the Bible. We would never know these things unless you had revealed them to us. And you've revealed them to us so that we would love you all the more and realize the security of your sovereignty and the greatness of your grace and the power of your mercy. And so if there's someone here who has never trusted Jesus, would they simply pray with me and say, God, I I turn from self and sin, and I trust Christ as the Lord of my life. And for all of us, God, would you continue to expand the depth of our hearts and our understanding that we might love you all the more as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.